Welcome to episode 205 of the No Proscenium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from the No Pro studio in Los Angeles, aka the kitchen table. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you through the means of our crowdfunding at patreon.com. Patreon.com slash no proscenium to help this show exist. And indeed, uh, everything we do exist. More on that in a little bit. This time out on the show, No Pros, Catherine Yu, our current New York coordinator, executive editor, and all things of all things, sits down with Ricky Briganti and Sarah Elger of Pseudonym Productions, who have recently moved their immersive theater company from Orlando to Philadelphia. The three of them sit down. They have a big old talk about just everything. I'm really looking forward to listening to this one. Uh, Ricky's a friend. Uh, as you know, he's one of the co-admins on Everything Immersive. He also wrote the uh, immersive industry report for us at the immersive design summit this year you can find a link to that in the show notes sarah has a background in architecture and theme park design so this is just this is one of those this is one of those really good ones i can tell already because of who's involved so we're gonna have a lot of fun here in a moment let's do a little bit of business indeed the patreon the patreon is uh <laughs> The Patreon's the major way that I survive now, so uh, this is no longer a gag or a joke. Some folks uh, asked uh, earlier this week because we we did a little like, "Hey, uh, you, we could really help uh, with people backing us," and they're like, "Oh, well, I'd love to give more than one or five dollars. Open up some of the higher tiers." So the reason why we don't just open up the ten and twenty five dollar tiers is that there's only so much juice that can be wrung out of a single human being, and there are uh, consulting hours associated with those, and there are um, what used to be packages we would send, but because the USPS turned it uh, that into being prohibitively expensive, there are now letters, handwritten letters that get sent out. And if I just opened all those up, uh, I would be doing nothing but that stuff, and I wouldn't be making no proscenium, which is why we have a Patreon. So what we've done instead is we've opened up a $9 tier. What does the $9 tier get you? Gets you what's in the $5 tier, but it costs four more dollars. Why would you do this? Because you say you want to give us more money. So there you go. Um, uh, that's, that's how we're doing this one. Um, and look, here's the thing. Every dollar counts. Um, we are kind of under the number of people who should be granting at this moment. Um, not necessarily for the podcast. Like I feel like the podcast audience is where we're about, you know, on where we should be. Uh, so if you're listening to this, sorry, you know, if you're giving and whatnot. But uh, for the folks who are, you know, with the newsletters and the website uh, and on social media, the audience has gotten a lot bigger and uh, we should be converting some more. So um, if you already give, what would be a really great boon is if you just tell people about what we're doing and talk about why you back NoPro. Um, that's a major thing and we need that help because, uh, look, we're in it now. Uh, we're in it now and we don't have an institutional sponsor at the moment. Uh, hopefully there'll be one at some point in the not too distant future. 
I'm full-time freelancing on this stuff, so I'm taking freelance gigs to pay the bills to make sure we keep this going. And frankly, um, there is so much more work that can be done and will be done. Um, we've got a team going down to SDCC. I'm going to be at SIGGRAPH this month. Uh, there's a lot of coverage to be done. There's a lot of exciting things in the offing, and we just need that support. Something beautiful that happened is we got a new sustaining backer. Paul F. jumped in uh, at the sustaining backer level. And so he joins uh, the pantheon of those folks who are, you know, being the backbone of what we do. And uh, Tome Wilson jumped in as well uh, at uh, a higher amount um, and uh, is also keeping us going. So, uh, but truth be told, um, what what I dream of is the day when we have of when we have a thousand five dollar backers or two thousand five dollar backers because then suddenly we'll have an amazing budget to work with, and people won't necessarily feel the pinch. So that's all I ever really do ask of folks. So if you're sitting there going like, oh, I'd love to give more, uh, open up the higher tiers. Well, we've kind of done that now. And just know that um, it's it's a lot better when people are just giving a little bit because uh, sometimes people give a lot and then it goes away. And then we're like, whoa, yo, um, where's the rent money? Okay, patreon.com slash no proscenium. I know, I, 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 I hate doing all that bit. Uh, I actually, um, but now I'm like so used to doing it that I, I don't even, don't even feel it anymore. <laughs> I used to, used to burn my soul. Okay. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Balthazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. Thank you all. And now, without further ado, let's get into this episode. <laughs> everyone, it's Catherine from No Persinium, New York, and today we have the lovely folks from Pseudonym Productions. Hey, I'm Sarah Alger. And I'm Ricky Briganti. So, you guys just moved uh, to Philadelphia from Orlando. Um, you are doing Pseudonym Productions full-time now. So, how exactly did you end up in Immersive Land? Like, what, what led you here? Who wants to go first? I'll let Ricky start. Oh, boy. Um... I guess, uh, let's see, the short version of the, the Ricky origin story is that uh, I grew up in Florida, went to theme parks my whole life, you know, on vacation, all of that, got really wrapped up in that world. Um, straight out of college, I did the Disney Imaginations program, which, you know, got to present to Imagineers and create a creative project and all of that, and, you know, got second place in that and realized I really wanted to do all of that, but didn't want to be in corporate America. Uh, it just wasn't working for me. That seems kind of <laughs> at odds. Like, so you yeah. didn't want to work for Universal. You didn't want to work for Disney. Right. But, but you I wanted love, yeah. theme, make theme parks. Yeah, I, lo- I love but... everything about that and, and the, the immersive nature of it and lose yourself in it. And so I figured out, well, let me do something on my own that is relevant to that. So that's when I started Inside the Magic, um, which at the time was a, a podcast when podcasts were brand new. You know, the word had just been coined and I was like, hey, no one's doing a Disney podcast. Let me do one of those. So like what year was that? 2005. Wow. Yeah. Um, And then that kept going for literally, I did a podcast every single week for 10 years, um, which was exhausting and wonderful at the same time. Uh, But that evolved to like when Facebook 
came a, a thing. And when YouTube came around and uh, I, you know, started a YouTube channel and built a website and it, it just kept steamrolling until it got to be, you know, an audience of, of millions and uh, it just sort of took on a life of its own. But along the way, after talking to gazillions of amazing people in the theme park industry, all the designers and Imagineers and everyone who creating all the things that I really enjoyed, I realized I wanted to do, you know, that I hadn't fulfilled that need for creating. And fortunately, um, I, well, I guess along the way, of course, I saw Sleep No More uh, here in New York, where we are sitting now. And um, that sort of changed everything. It was like, wow, this is a whole thing that I want to become part of. And that's when somebody literally tweeted me a link to a Reddit post from Sarah when she was working on what was Pseudonym's first big production in Orlando called The Republic, just in the very early days of that. And I reached out to her and was like, hey, let's talk. I'd love to interview you for the website and find out more about the project. And it just kept going <laughs> from there. So, yeah, that's, that's my story in a nutshell. What about you? Yeah, Sarah. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, thank you. So this, so this <laughs> random guy reaches out to you. You think you're like the only immersive theater person in all of Orlando. Well, I was completely horrible because I was working at Universal at the time. And this random guy, yeah, uh, said, oh, I have this, you know, website podcast blog thing like it'd be great to meet you <laughs> I had no idea what inside the magic was but fortunately one of my really good friends Allie who worked with me at Universal was like oh my gosh that's Ricky you know and she sort of like fangirled a little bit <laughs> on Ricky I was like I don't know who this guy is um so I go and I meet him we meet up in you know in the parks because I was like okay well I can meet you on my lunch break sure so we meet in the parks right, right after like up. Harry Wait, Potter so, so opened you have a lunch break in the theme park. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. So I was working as a designer, um, designing attractions for Universal Creative at the time. Um, and that's when, yeah, Ricky came. He, he interviewed me about the project. And it, even now, I have a hard time describing what we do. At that time, it was even harder. And so I just sort of went on this whole probably multi-hour tirade story of everything that I was trying to accomplish. And afterwards, he kind of blew my mind because he literally said, I get it. First of all, that was, that was very strange <laughs> for me to hear. And then he, the next day, he wrote this wonderful summary of everything I spewed at him, and it made sense. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what we're doing. Thank you. You nailed it. I would love for you to join us and be a part of, well, us, meaning me, um, be a part of this you crazy were, You were amassing some pretty great people. I, 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 I was, to be fair. Um, one of the other people who has been huge to pseudonyms sort of history and life is Nikhil. And I guess where this whole thing started for me especially, um, I'm one of those people who things never really made sense to me before. I never um, knew what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. I was all over the place, um, completely like lost in this whole world. Um, I actually, you know, I went to college, I studied art and dance. I thought I was gonna become this great artist success instantly moved to New York City, where um, that obviously fell flat instantly. Um, lived in like a crappy apartment with my best friend in Brooklyn, um, trying to become the next big artist. Fortunately, I ended up working at a company that I found on, I found this job on Craigslist, where it was this company that produced West Side Story and the Heights and Avenue Q on Broadway. I was just this marketing assistant, which was insane. Um, so I got to know the Broadway theater world inside and out. And that was just absolutely stunning to be able to see productions constantly. I grew into this love of the set design, the lighting design, the costumes, the worlds. And I was just sick of sitting in this stupid seat the whole time. I was like, I want to get out of my seat. I want to go do something. Um, 
So I ended up working for a set designer. Then uh, he recommended I go get my master's of architecture at Penn. Architecture. Uh, yeah, so that's random. Uh, so his other assistants at the time were going to get their master's of scenic design. And I thought it was a fantastic idea. I already had this art degree that literally did nothing for me. I mean, great school, great, like, whatever. I think like an artist. But still, what am I going to do as a career? Mm -hmm. Still had no freaking idea. So you were idea. looking for something a little more practical. I, yeah, or just something that I could actually do things with. Because I felt, you know, I was a struggling artist. I was lost. And I was trying to get a job in this wonderful giant city of New York. And I had no idea what to do. I didn't want to sit behind a desk and do spreadsheets all day which is what I was doing. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I couldn't get a foot in the door anywhere. So, I mean, other than working for this amazing set designer for free. I literally had to be a nanny part-time in order to afford to live here and work for the set designer for free. Um, but that's when he said, you know, well, my background's in architecture. Maybe this could give you an extra step up, leg up. It's an extra year of school, but it could be something to open, you know, open a lot of doors for you. I thought that was a great insight. I had no interest in being an architect. Um, <laughs> it was kind of stupid, actually. Um, but that's where I ended up getting oddly accepted into the University of Pennsylvania, their architecture program. Um, he went there, so I think he helped really get me in, which was very kind of him. Very nice. <laughs> uh, but that's really where Pseudonym was born. Because, again, I was bored. A lot of times I get bored, and then bad or weird or good things happen. So I was in this program. It was all, like, structures, compression, and tension, and straight lines and that's all scary for me so I ran off to the theater department many times made a lot of friends that was my place of uh that was sort of like my home you had so you found refuge in the theater department yes your away degree from the was in a totally different school yes yes um but I then created this group because I started becoming interested in these concepts of architecture that I was learning the way that space can truly change the way that somebody moves or feels or perceives each other and you know there's for example there's Adolf Lowe's who the way he describes moving people through space is about revealing and not revealing and oh I can see somebody but I can't get to them so there's all these amazing principles so okay what if we take that and then what if we take video games? I played a lot of World of Warcraft in college with my best friend. How do we take that and make an experience out of it? So I started this brainstorm team with a bunch of freshmen in college. Um, I got them beer and pizza, and we started what has turned into Pseudonym Productions, which is oh, kind of so they, they were all fellow students. They were all students. It was this crazy group from all over the place, and this is where I found Nikhil. Um, I got them drunk every Tuesday and Thursday in the basement of our architecture building. Well, that's building. very handy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, regularly scheduled beer. Right. Always. I was like, oh, I'll get them to show up. Um, but that's where we started coming up with what could it mean to have an experience that you can communicate. You're not just behind a mask. It's not sleep no more. It's not passive. But you feel something. You feel special. You can make decisions. You can make choices. So it's really at this school and like with this crazy group of people from different interests um, that Nikhil really sort of shown. He sort of stood up and was like, this is what we should do. Here's a way we could do this. And the two of us have sort of been um, working together ever since. And then that's when, uh, after that, I graduated and went, uh, went to Universal full time. And then Ricky sort of fell into my lap. And that's sort of how we kind of kept going. But I think the biggest thing for me is I've always been so kind of insecure or confused as an artist my whole life, trying to, I, I never knew where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. I was felt kind of lost in this whole world of creativity. 
And it's just amazing to think that all these small moves that I did that I made actually meant something later and, and allowed me to hit a point now in my life that I can think think back on all of that and be like, yes, that made sense. Yes, that made sense. Because of all this crazy stuff I did, I can now do this yeah, now yeah. with all the help of all these amazing people. That, yeah. that is that is the wonder of, of what we, I guess, are now calling the, the immersive design industry or immersive entertainment industry is it is such a... Uh, weird mishmash of disciplines mm-hmm. um, and you, you don't have to have all of them you can have just this one or just these two or, or pull from pieces of everything and you know you can kind of invent that yourself it's like the world of theme parks that we come with it, it, it's become a little bit rigid um, there's a very specific design methodology and what you need out of experiences there because you're entertaining tens of thousands of people a day and it's great to be part of something that is is still figuring itself out. You know, this industry of of like, well, what if we did this? Well, no one's ever done that before. Let's try it and see what happens. Oh, well, that worked and that didn't work. Now let's try it again. You know, it's really fun to experiment. And, and that's what we've been doing for the past four and a half to five years is, you know, putting on really awesome big productions, but also experimenting and figuring out what resonates, what works, what just falls flat completely. And yeah, putting those pieces together for, for us. I'm reminded by something that Sean Stewart said on Twitter a few months ago. Life is like a drunk Jeopardy. You never know when you're going to be the answer to someone's question. And that's a, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, well, I love video games, but I was studying theater. I love theme parks, but I was studying something else. Like, I was performing on stage, but I really like to do this or do that. And then all of a sudden you start to find, like, those those connection points. So that's really cool to hear both of your backgrounds. Do you want to talk about some of the first pseudonym shows and kind of, like, that journey, what you've learned along the way? Sure. Um, so the first one we did in Orlando was called The Republic. Um, what year was that? That was 2015. So I was working at Universal Creative, and I was sort of a low-level designer, sitting in my computer doing CAD drawings, and... She downplays it. It's a pretty cool job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, sure. Yeah, it was cool. It was definitely cool. Um, It was better than designing um, architectural bathrooms. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right, or office buildings or something. Exactly. exactly. You're placing Uh, skulls. But (laughs) still, I was sitting in front of my computer. I was being told exactly what to do, and I felt very stifled creatively, and I was surrounded by these brilliant, creative people. And I felt a lot of their same sort of kind of creative angst. They're like, we're so creative, yet we're really stifled because we have to design this one thing. And it's all logical. Like, I get it. It's part of that corporate machine. It, it is. It is. And there's a specific system. That, that's fine. Um, I needed an outlet. I needed another creative outlet. I was feeling that, that moment of I need to sort of explode creatively. So again, I was just chatting with Nikhil, who was still an undergrad, and he he just said, well, you know, why don't we just do something in Orlando? Sure, let's just throw that out there. Yeah, let's just do a yeah, production. Right. Okay, so, okay, let's just do a show. Right. right. Whatever that means. <laughs> so we looked up and found out there was the Orlando Fringe Festival. And then I heard about it. I, I'd been to a few, and I thought, yeah, this could be this could be awesome. Why not? So that started this whole sort of journey of, again, trying to figure out, because we had this sort of small concept from, I did this, this whole architectural thesis on merging architecture, video game, and theater, and okay, let's do it for real. So uh, somehow I stumbled onto, actually, um, Mike, 
What's mm-hmm. Mike's last name? Uh, Maraschino. Maraschino. Mike yeah. Maraschino, who's the director of the Orlando French Festival. I contacted him and I was like, hey, do you have this like weird, unique space? I don't need this traditional theater that we could just do something crazy in. And he browsed around and he got back to me, this developer of this space in Orlando. And he said, well, maybe this developer will be kind enough to let you do something in his space. Talk to the developer. The space was about to be demolished. It was this 18,000 shell of a warehouse, kind of gross and dingy, but in a great location right next to Orlando Fringe. And I baked him a pie. I turned all Southern. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll use my, you know, my Southern roots. And, you know. So you were trying to charm your way oh, into yeah, Fringe. Yeah, I mean, you got to use whatever and, you can. Into, into getting this <laughs> giant space that, that was way bigger than anything we should have had at so the time. Your, your first show. Yes. How many thousands of square it feet? It was 18,000 square feet. Completely empty, like zero... <laughs> did, cli- did you have electricity at least? There was electricity, yeah. sort no, of. No climate control oh. in Orlando in the summer. <gasps> right. But but you don't understand. In my view, this thing was just like glowing gold. Right. It was like this beautiful blank yeah. canvas it, for it, you. It was. It was. I mean, yeah, all of all of the stuff was gross. Like, it was disgusting. I was like scrubbing the bathroom, scrubbing the floors. It was, it was right in the middle of this yeah. conversation when I joined, and I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into until literally she, it was, it was me and uh, two other people on the team, uh, two or three, sort of, she sort of kidnapped us one night and was like, just come with me, trust me. We're like, okay. Literally drive up to this dingy old warehouse in the dark, and we're like, what are we doing here? She's like, it's ours. Surprise. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is where we're doing this? Oh, how? Why? Just don't worry about it. It's ours. <laughs> um, so we scrappily uh, had no budget. We dumpster dived. We did all the things, all the immersive theater people. We, we did a do. small Kickstarter, yeah. which is great. A lot, of, a lot of friends and family contributed. So that, that basically funded the whole thing. Right. And we hand-built everything, all these rooms. It was, I mean, it was raw to say the least. Um, you know, fabric hanging, just all the stuff. Two by fours and plastic sheeting. Right. How much can I guilt trip my friends at Universal to come help on the weekends, build stuff? Um, we got a lot of props and stuff. Like, I think, can I talk about the walls that we got? I don't know. We got the Harry Potter construction <laughs> fence walls. Because they were just throwing them out. Right. 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 <laughs> Right, so instead of like the typical blue, um, like plywood and whatnot, you had themed construction well, walls. Well, it was still just raw wood, okay. but, but, but they were already we like walls. So, yeah. Okay. yeah, because they're all schemed and they like let us take yeah, them because they, they were just going to be in the dumpsters. So right. We just grabbed them and we used some pre-built walls, yeah. so that was fun. And then, yeah, we brought all these actors on board really early. Because especially we had no clue really what we were doing. We were, like Ricky said, we were really experimenting. We had a loose story, a loose structure. But putting a call out for, mm-hmm. um, you know, even even the phrase immersive theater didn't really mean anything at that point, especially in Orlando. It was, it was a loose phrase, but mm-hmm. it intrigued people because Orlando has an insane amount of amazing actors because they're all in the theme parks. Right. And they're, they're all, all cast members. Right. They do improv. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The improv scene there is wonderful. Um, but they're also looking for th- other things to do. That's not just happy, happy theme park work. So it was, we, we got a great response from, from people really eager to, to see what this was all about. And I was really excited to bring them in because I really wanted to collaborate with them. Sorry, that's me. No Keep going. <laughs> um, and I really wanted to bring them in and, and, and allow them to help us. Or, or, you know, essentially, they helped us really create the depth of these worlds and the depth of all of these characters. 
so that any time a, we call them players instead of audience members, interacted with them, they could respond instantly. And they knew exactly what to say, how to say it, and, and in such a way that was actually really meaningful and furthered a conversation that perhaps the players could have in the future with other players. How did the participants react? <laughs> uh, so we had no expectations when we first opened the doors. And, and, we, and for Fringe, because we knew we were going to run longer than Fringe, um, we sort of called fringe, the Fringe weeks that we were open our beta test. And we're just like, we don't really know what's going to happen. We have this whole system and this, this show of movement and scenes, and it's going to be you know an hour and a half to two hours long. And we communicated the best we could to people, but they were still just like we did. They were arriving to this like random warehouse and being like, wait, is this a haunted house? You know, even escape rooms didn't really, wasn't much of a thing then. So there was no, that thought was it, was, it was literally just like, oh, I'm a little scared. Um, not necessarily the intent, but the result was, we, you know, we were concerned maybe they'd be too passive, but it went the complete opposite extreme and turned into this like beautiful chaotic playground where, where people just jumped in full force from moment one and were literally running around and talking to people and stealing things. And, and the story we love to tell is one, one of the very early nights because uh, we were doing things like, you know, you find a, a map and a character's like, oh, you have to go down here and sneak over here and we'll give you a radio and this and that. And then somebody gets caught. One of our players literally, literally ate the map. <laughs> Ingested oh the map. goodness. The paper map. Yeah. And, and we were like, okay, let's keep, let's just do it. Yeah, well, you know, so, so. You, so you were like, let's lean into this. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Everything was yes and constantly. Um, it didn't always make sense. But, and people were sweating profusely because you know, hot Orlando, but they, it was like that added to it. Everyone was just like, oh my God, I'm exhausted, but that was such a fun time. And because of that, we knew there was something special going on there because people were so just like, this. I've never experienced anything like this. I don't really know what it is, but I want more of it, whatever that, that feeling that they had. So um, yeah, it was, it was amazing to see the response. It was really interesting too because uh, we... During the production, we had a sort of little upstairs command center, and we had cameras all over the place, and all of our actors had communication devices. And so I was kind of live directing, in a way, up there, just sort of, hey, you go over here, you go over here, let's do this. Oh, this player that's doing this, you need to go over here. And it was really cool to sort of see everything all at once and see it be able to come together. Um, I remember the first night that we did it, I like walked out, I was just exhausted, super proud of everybody because it, hey, it worked, we did it somehow. It came together and I just walked outside and I remember seeing all these people just standing right outside, still just talking about what we were doing in the production and I was a little shocked and so I sort of like sneaked over and just wanted to like watch them from a distance. But ever since then, uh, one of the biggest things we found is people don't wanna leave. Afterwards, they just stay, even if we kick them out. They stay just, just outside because they want to share their stories and they want to share everything that they experienced with each other because they had such different pathways and decisions. And, and then they show up the next night and do it all over again and then tell those stories and be like, oh, oh, you, did you see this? No, I didn't see that. I'll come back so I can see that. You know, those, those conversations are, are a lot of fun. Or because we shift how things happen on a nightly basis... Even that story they tell one night, they're like, okay, well, maybe next tomorrow I'm going to do this instead of this to see what happens. So they'll literally just do the exact same things up until a point and then be like, no, now I'm going to go over here and do this thing. And yeah, it's, it's sort of that 
that magical moment of discovery when the you know the unexpected happens just from you you choosing to do something. So did you think that the show was going to be a success or a failure? Like, were you all amped up to do a second show right after that? I think we were kind of in shock and awe of what happened. I mean, it was kind of a, a, a beautiful disaster in, in a way. Um, I think it was very successful. Um, the fact that we had people come back multiple times and our system that we created never truly broke. It was complete chaos. Right. There, there were there a was, lot of people who yeah. had absolutely no idea what was going on, and that was okay. We were right. just, you know. But the point was we, we wanted to try out this idea, and we wanted to see if people could connect with something like this. And, I mean, yes, there's a whole range of emotions that, that people went through during this experience. And, and, yeah, I was super eager. I was ready to... Okay, I was I kept playing the what if game with myself. I mean, I went back to my full time job. I had a full time job doing this, and I said, I want to do the next one, but this one needs to be better. It needs to be, you know, at a better location with air conditioning <laughs> and, you know, more thought out storylines. Better better right. sets, you know, yeah. So that really was sort of the original spark for what became of, of sort of our future productions. So what was the uh, what was the show right after that one? So we took a little bit of a break to actually, you know, step back. We did a lot of, we got a lot of feedback from everybody because there's a lot for us to learn from this test. And it, it was amazing the results we got. So we could say, okay, great. This completely fell flat on his face. This was successful. How do we merge all this together? And so we rebuilt everything. How long was that? We spent about nine months because um, you, at some point during that nine months, you, you quit your job. Um, Congratulations. I, was, <laughs> I was still I was still running inside the magic at the time, but I had begun to hire a staff for the first time because I wanted to focus on this. Mm -hmm. And so I started putting, you know, like, oh, I can have a reporter in California and a reporter in Orlando and this and that. And so I, I was like, cool, I can let them sort of do their thing while I focus on this. And then Nikhil moved to Orlando after he graduated. So the three of us, like every day we were sitting down and that was sort of the, the first instance of, of quote unquote full-time pseudonym. Um, even though we didn't really know what that meant. And yeah, so we spent maybe nine months before we got our, you know, in the design development blue sky concept, you know, process, uh, refining the Republic into what became When Shadows Fall and uh, hunting around for real estate and found, you know, Orlando's an interesting place when it comes to real estate. Uh, it is a city that loves to bulldoze its history. Um, and it doesn't have that much of a history. You know, essentially before Disney moved in, Central Florida wasn't much of anything. It was orange groves, and that's about it. And since then, it has become, you know, a wonderful city full of amazing, you know, world-class attractions. Uh, and then, a, you know, a, a small but, but tight-knit downtown scene and, and a few other pockets. But it's like there's no, there are very few, like, really amazing buildings there. So we ended up in another sort of digital old warehouse, uh, but th two thirds of it had air conditioning this time, which was great. It was a former thrift store and uh, pet care facility. Yeah, we had uh, a lot of cleaning to do. Yes, yes, oh, a lot dear. of cleaning. We did a full renovation of the whole thing, refinished the floors, did everything. So we got it to this perfect sparkly box, and then built out walls for real. You know, we did full you know permits and drywall and fire marshals and all the stuff. Um, and created, uh, like I said, When Shadows Fall, which was, as we, as we started, it was the Republic 2.0, basically. Um, and then that was, that is really when I think Pseudonym came together. 
that's when we open and but literally the second night suddenly a fan group had formed and they they created their own Facebook group uh, they, oh, that's great. They, they they named themselves after a plot point in the, in the show we had this drug in the, in the story called the second strain so they called themselves the second strain addicts and they've been amassing ever since every show they would come back they would recruit more people they would show up in costume as you know, not as our characters, but they were like role playing. They, so they were they were in world. Yeah, in yeah, world. Yeah. Exactly. They created their own backstories. They they actually <laughs> found the parts in our story where we were missing some backstory and wrote it themselves. You know, their own fan fiction, and and it was just amazing to see that steamroll. While everyone was just, it started to click. It started to make a lot more sense. Far, far, far. Uh, less people were leaving confused. You know, we tweaked it for a while. We got feedback every single night, and we were like, okay, this didn't work. Let's fix that now. And then tomorrow's show, we'll try it again. And we, we iterated on that for about a month before it just, it finally just kind of worked. Um, and it was amazing for the run of that, which was about three months, to see it just take on a complete life of its own. Um, to three months is quite an achievement, too. Like, so many shows play for a weekend or two, and then right. they're gone. Yeah, we ended up, um, both The Republic and that show brought about uh, a little over a thousand people. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was really surprising. And at some point, uh, like we wanted to keep it going, um, but you know, uh, a lot of the actors, as we said, in Orlando are theme park actors, and we were approaching Halloween season, and Halloween Horror Nights gobbles up everybody. Um, and I love Halloween Horror Nights, so I, I get it. Um, <laughs> right. So a if lot you were them, you're like, yeah, I'm oh, gonna go yeah. work HHN. Yeah, instead. and then they had told us that because we only signed them up until that point for their contracts. And so at that point, we were like, all right, we could fully recast and retrain, which would have been a giant ordeal. Or let's just let's just keep going with a new a new show. And um, also, I mean, to be completely honest. We understood from a creative standpoint what we were doing because, you know, we had done The Republic. That was sort of our creative test. We'd done When Shadows Fall. Further creative test. But neither of us have really... I mean, Ricky has had Inside the Magic. I have no real business background or business training. And so that was a big aspect that we were lacking is really sort of a strong understanding of how to run an actual business. We could run a production. We could start a production. We could create things, but... How to manage something on that level was very challenging for us, and that right. was really new. And that's also where we kind of lost ourselves. Right. The financial aspect mm -hmm. of it was really challenging, as it is in, still today for so many in this this immersive industry. It's really, uh, it has become obvious to us in recent years, recent months even, how important it is to sort of approach business first in order to have any sort of sustainability. Because we, you know, we say when, to your point, when Shadows Fall was creatively successful, one hundred percent, business not so much. Um, so that you know, that's that's that was a huge, huge learning point for us. And I think that's where um, I mean, we, we've done several productions since then. We've started dabbling into the world of you know digital experiences with uh, hashtag no filter, and then this project we're currently doing. Um, but that really led us to uh, apply to this accelerator program that's called uh, Creative Startups and it's based in Albuquerque and that program has been truly transformative for us as a company and, and I think me personally as well it has allowed me to grow you know what sort of that architecture degree did for me creatively allowing to sort of focus in a creative way um, this startup program allowed me to understand all of these business 
terms that have been way over my head and now it makes sense. Now it's logical. Now I'm back to spreadsheets every day. Um, but it makes, it, it makes sense. All the numbers are there and we can create projections and we can create full expenses and business models right. and all of the things that you need to actually have a real functioning, sustainable, scalable business. And then the creative can come in, you know, you need that groundwork. And I think that's a really important, what creative startups is doing is pretty phenomenal because they, their program is, is I believe the only accelerator of its kind, at least in the U S that is specifically tailored toward creatives. And that means all of the artists who are very excited about their art, whatever version of the, whether it's immersive or not, and, and just don't know how to get past that starving artist phase. Um, this is tailored for them to learn how to not lose their artistic integrity, but make that make sense to where they can actually support themselves and make money off of that. You know, that's not a, a bad thing, you know. Um, it, it was really cool. I felt, I felt like we were just sort of having business hand-holding. And it was super cute. Here's an example. When we had our first spreadsheet that we had to do as one of our homework assignments, it, it's, it's for our, our KPI dashboard. I had no idea what that meant at the time. And literally, they gave us this little spreadsheet. Um, I'm not going to cuss. We called them spreadsheets. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, it was color-coded. There were smiley faces. It was super, like, happy, artist-friendly. And right. they said, these are numbers. It's going to be okay. So it was like the kid gloves version <laughs> yes. of, right. like, how do you even measure success in this field? Exactly. Right. But what's, what, what's amazting, um, I mean, this was only an eight-, nine-week program. Uh, oh, really? I thought it was much longer than that. Well, well, there's an extended sort of relationship that comes after that, okay. but the so actual you go, program... So you do like basically like a boot camp yeah, for it, eight weeks. It was, it was like eight weeks online, and then one week, as they call it, the deep dive in Albuquerque, where everyone gets together. But it, the, the pace at which it sort of moved from that kid gloves phase to arriving in Albuquerque, and they were like, you thought this was over. Actually, we're just starting. This is this is boot camp, and it, it became the the tone shift from like, oh, it's okay, we're figuring it out, we'll all get there together. It shifted quickly from from that to you don't know what you're doing, you have to know by the end of this week. We are going to make that happen, but you have to do everything that we say, and we're doing it now. Wow, wow! <laughs> and they had all these mentors come and go, and usually when you first meet somebody and you looked at their backgrounds, you research them, you're like, oh, I can't wait to talk to this person. They said, no, there's no time for small talk. You need to talk about this. You need to talk about numbers. You need to have this specific number nailed down by the end of these two hours. Go. Right. Don't don't get to know them as people. They're not here for that. You're not here for that. You're here to push your company forward as quickly as possible. And and that's what it did for us. You know, those two months have moved pseudonym forward as a company from a business perspective more than the four years of productions that we did, um, which is, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's truly an accelerator program that, that got us. And then we got back, you know, they, they said the real work begins on the Monday when you return after the accelerator ends. And that couldn't have been more true because since then, and it's been what, a month and a half since then. Um, yeah it's been as if the program hasn't ended because we've continued to talk to them. We've continued to talk to the advisors and mentors that they've opened up doors with, grow our network of people who can help us do what we're going to do using what they know. You know, people who are just amazingly uh, talented people from around the country who are CEOs of companies and, uh, you know, le leaders in various pieces of industries who are just very generous with their time because they want to help. They want to give back. And so... Yeah, that's been incredible. 
Um, so I think this has really been the missing piece for us all along is having this sort of strong business understanding and background because at the end of the day while I want to create fun amazing productions that people can connect with and all with the creative you know nuts and grit and bolts and everything <laughs> nuts and grits I don't know sure. <laughs> I mean you are from the south right, right. yeah the <laughs> cans and grits right I like my, my grits cheesy um, <laughs> um it, at the end of the day we're trying to be a company and a successful one and so we can't do that we can't have this this growth without actually putting in that work and it's now we have you know three or four really strong business advisors who are still holding our hands right. through every step of the way well, and really was, guiding us forward that was a huge part of this particular year's accelerator as well um, this is the same program that Meow Wolf went through a few years ago uh, when they were just a, a group of artists who didn't know they had something amazing but didn't know what to do with it and this program helped them put those pieces together. And obviously, they've been tremendously successful and are increasingly so. So they turned around and wanted to give back to the program and, and sponsored it this year and offered their guidance. And we got to go out to Santa Fe and spend a full day, um, not just, you know, we spent a couple hours exploring the House of Eternal Return. But more importantly, we sat down with, with Vince and Sean and, you know, so they're, they're co-founders. And they were just like, Ask us anything. We're here to tell you whatever you need to know and help you. And we went to like their production facility and saw what they're working on. And, and it was just really inspirational to watch a group of artists put everything together and make it work. But they also very clearly told us this has been work. You know, it became it's become business. It's not just, oh, we're doing creative stuff. It's like you actually have to sit down and do the work if you're going to want to make this happen. And yeah, since then, we've we've it's been wonderful to continue those conversations with them. And, um, you know, one of their co-founders and their business advisor have been helping us tremendously over the last uh, month and a half to put put our pieces together just like they did so that we can create you know the future of pseudonym that's actually going to be something that can stick around even longer than than three months so in terms of the program like do they usually do theater companies or is it more like visual artists performing arts or is it flexible enough to really um you know work with people from all those genres yeah it's for people all, all over in the creative sector i mean there were two interior design companies there was um an urban magazine company See what else? There's a, a comic book company. There, it was literally the whole gamut of what you consider creative industry. And so yeah, it, I was, think it, it was, was application uh, in order to get in. You know, they they didn't tell us exactly how many, but they said what they had well over a hundred companies apply for this year's, and they only accepted twelve or thirteen because they want to keep it small so that they can really work with every single company. I mean, it was quite an application process. You had to do multiple videos. You had to explain what your goals were. And, you know, we had to go ahead. Even just that process was <laughs> moving us forward from a business. Right. It was asking us questions that we... Can, can you articulate what you're doing in two sentences? Right. Well, can, <laughs> the, the, can, the elevator can pitch. Can you, Ricky? Because, I mean... <laughs> I feel like this is something that everyone who works in immersive struggles with. Right. How do you even explain it? Yeah, yeah, we have we have a few ways of where. Yeah, I mean that was a huge part of this. We we iterated on that, and as uh, here was a, a great piece of advice that one of them said was like, you need to pass the mom test. They were like, if you can't say to your mom or someone else's mom what you do, and have them be able to repeat that to somebody else, and ha to the point where they understand it, then you're not doing it right. And yeah, that, took, well, that took some work. <laughs> well, never. Well, I, I'm never gonna ever pass my mom test. That's <laughs> just not gonna happen. Uh, 
We passed the uncle test. Okay. Which, yeah. yeah. Which, uh, That's uncle close enough. Uncle came to dinner. Right. We explained it briefly, and he was like, "Yeah, this sounds cool. I get it." I said, "Okay, awesome." He go back to uh, Lena, our our sort of she's our pseudo mom. Uh, pseudonym. Uh, <laughs> and we said, we passed the test. So it was pretty exciting. So so we're, we're, our current version of the messaging, which we're still working on uh, actively, actually one of our advisors now is somebody I've known for a long time. He's a, a former um, executive of public relations at Disneyland. So he's currently helping us even refine our language so that it's as understandable to as many people as possible. Um, but we've, for, for us, we've, we've latched onto a couple of notions. Um, I mean, this is a, here's a great takeaway from creative startups that helped us understand the specific angle at which we're approaching immersive design. Um, they, they said, figure out, and to use their words, your customer's delight that you are, mm. you are providing. What is it, even if you're creating these incredible worlds with deep stories and you know, emotional connections, what are they taking away? You know, what is the thing that makes them excited about what you're doing? And then can you achieve that in a different way, you know, to refine your product? How can you, and, and so it was that method of thinking. And for us, what we very quickly realized by literally just like going to Facebook and reading our reviews and seeing what people were saying about us, that sure, they were saying, oh, we love the story, we love the characters, all of those things. But you can say that about a movie, you can say that, you know, about all kinds of entertainment. What they were saying about us specifically was, uh, one, we did the unexpected, that we didn't know what we were getting into, we were pushed a little bit out of our comfort zone, and we grew, uh, you know, people kind of came out of their shell who were shy and became very, you know, extroverted, essentially, and they were like, wow, I feel like a better person because of that, or a more... Um, so there's some element of being transformed. Transformative, yeah, personal growth. So that, that's one element. Um, but also just connecting people together. So many people have made friends through our experiences that they didn't come in expecting that, but it happened. And and it's not just like casual friendships. It's been like lifelong bonds. We, you know, we even we had a, a marriage proposal during one of our shows. Wait, wait, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. So we realized that that was a, a key element of what we were doing. That we were actually designing social experiences. You know, so many immersive experiences are very isolating and, and personal. And that's very impactful, but it's different than what we were creating. We've created worlds in which you are, you are yourself or who you ever, whoever you want to be that night, and and you play. And because of that, you know you can learn a lot about yourself. You can learn a lot about others, and you can form those bonds. And so, you know, leaning into that, you know, we've 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 come up with a few a few words to describe it. But the one we're we're currently saying. That is maybe a bit grandiose, but you know we, we like to say we're we're connecting the world through unexpected experiences, and and you know yeah, we, we like sort it. of explain from really there. It's really succinct too. Yeah. Like it's you're not going through this whole mouthful of experiential agency, participatory, right. interactive, blah blah blah. Yeah. Because to the average person, a lot of these words make no sense. And sure, there is you know the immersive bubble where they will get it instantly. But the one thing that we've been practicing and working on is how do you reach out to new audience members, to new players, to people who don't know what escape rooms are, would don't, I mean, sure, maybe they've played a video game, maybe they've heard of video games, and that's about it. But there's a whole world of people that I think could really embrace immersive theater or, you know, what we're doing. And it's how do you reach out to them and have them say, yes, this sounds like something I'm super excited about. And likewise, um, it's been very clear that we have to describe ourselves in terms of things that people do understand. Um, and so for us, it's it's a bit like 
theme parks meets real life video games meets immersive theater. And and so it's like okay, I can sort of get a visual of of you know right. it's like and it's, they it, might know the first two. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't know one know of the them, third, yeah, it's anyway. okay. And then we could say you know it's it's kind of like you know stepping into your favorite movie, you know. So, but but we're telling our own original stories. So yeah, it's really important I think for anyone creating work like this to sort of take a step back and figure out how to articulate what they're doing to somebody who pretend it's your mom like you said you know it's somebody who has absolutely no concept about any of this and what can you say as a touchstone that makes it make sense for them right like your neighbor next door or your dog walker or something like a random person you meet at this on on the subway or at a restaurant because you you don't right you don't want people you don't want your customers and we've we've come to use the word customer a lot which was a little scary at some point because it's it's very money oriented but that's what they are and we've come to learn that what we what we need as a business is that your customers need to be walking away being able to tell other people about their experience in in words that aren't like intimidating you know like oh i did this this crazy scary thing where i went into this dark alley and was in this old warehouse i'm like people would just be like whoa i'm not doing that and like what's wrong with you yeah You're exactly weird. right yeah. right and and sure that appeals to a, a, the niche and right. that niche is amazing and i i am part of that niche <laughs> but for the most people yeah that's that's weird yeah right because if you use too haunt specific language mm-hmm. people might get turned off right if you use right too much video game language people have like all this baggage around games and gaming so they might get turned off too another thing that uh they they were telling us at creative startups and one thing that took us a long time to really figure out as we were speaking learning about our language is they said you want to use what they call friction-free storytelling and what that means is they want we need to tell the same story about ourselves as what our customers are telling about us and that should be the same unified story. So if they're saying something like, oh, this is super scary, it's super whatever, that's what we should be saying. Fortunately, that's not what is right. going but out like there. But if, if it doesn't reflect what mm-hmm. they perceive, mm-hmm. then you're kind of like, well, but this is what I'm trying to communicate, so there's a disconnect there. Exactly. Right, yeah, and, and we it was really interesting to see during the program, there were definitely some of the companies in the Accelerator were very, I'm an artist, I don't want to change my artistic view just to please some people who are paying me money. I'm going to do what I do and they're going to like it or not. And the response to that is, you know, that's okay as an artist. But if you want to be a business person, that's not okay, actually. Because you need to be creating something that as many people as possible can enjoy. And if your artistic vision is for four people, great, you have four customers. You can't ever expect that you're ever going to be bigger than that. Or if it's just for yourself. Right. Sure, then you're an artist and that's amazing. Continue to do your work. But we're now entrepreneurs. I now consider Pseudonym a startup and not just a production company. And so it's really just a shift in mentality of our job now is to create experiences really for our customers, for our players, instead of really selfishly just for myself and for Ricky to really like doing what we do. Right, right. You know, and that's really, it's it's definitely a shift in mentality of, you know, kind of, yeah, the selfish holding of of what we love to just sort of opening up and really, Mm -hmm. this is for them. And creating, yeah, creating something that's bigger than you because, you know, as... As the program went, you know, it, it sort of culminated in like investor pitch day. And and the idea there, it was less about the actual pitch or anything involving money. It was more about the fact that this could, your company could become something bigger than you are and could actually, there, there could be a day. It could be five years from now, it could be 10 years from now, it could be two years from now 
where you're not even part of your company anymore. And the company has a life of its own because other people have become involved. And it's to have that mentality is, is definitely a huge switch. Um, if you're just creating work for yourself, you can do that. But if, if you're creating something that can sustain and, and live and take on a life of its own without you, you know, thinking of the biggest companies in the world, that's what they are. That is a very different approach to, to creation. And it just depends on what you want out of it. Yeah, it also seems um, like the opposite of what a lot of companies are going for in terms of interactivity and agency and having the participants drive what happens. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of these shows, they don't exist without the audience. And once you do put the audience in, you have no idea what's going to happen. Like you guys were saying, beautiful chaos, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't just make it for yourself. Otherwise, it's... Um, I think Michael Terragarver just called it like sets with no humans. <laughs> and then you put the humans in, you're like, oh my God, they opened <laughs> this box, they went down that door, oh, yeah. they're saying what to that character? <laughs> there's definitely, I, I like that phrase a lot. There, are, there's a, there seems to be a big trend right now in the immersive industry of sets with no humans. And, and those are experiences that I think are great door openers for people who have no idea of what it means to just step into a, a world outside your own and explore and discover. You know, if, if the everyday is like you go to work, you go home, you pick up your kids from school, there's a lack of adventure in your life. And to have that sort of begun to pick up steam now, even if it's in a version that I guess we would look at as simpler, because it doesn't have all those moving parts, um, it's great to see so many people going through those experiences and having those uh, adventures now that imagine a year, two years, three years from now when more people have been exposed to this idea of like, oh, I just walked through this door, I'm in this whole other world. Cool, now let's take that to the next step. Now, you know, are you comfortable with that? You know, Keep pushing those personal boundaries for the average person um, not just the hardcore fans. And at some point in the next few years, we're going to see that dramatic shift in, in experiential entertainment to where people are expecting more. Most people are expecting more, um, which is going to be really exciting to see where, where everybody goes with that. Yeah, it seems like um, the just gestation period has been like several years long. Yeah. Like enough people have seen Sleep No More, Done Then She Fell seen um, like some fringe shows, off-Broadway shows, gone to Meow Wolf, or started thinking about uh, theme parks from that immersive lens. So, Ricky, you, a few months ago, did a report for the Immersive Design Summit, so you probably have some additional color around <laughs> where you think the industry is going to go. Yeah, that was that was quite a task. Uh, <laughs> I thank Noah for for thinking I was up to it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, from, you know, from writing for Inside the Magic and covering theme parks for so many years and, and ultimately the themed entertainment industry, I've got a, a pretty good handle on where everything is. It's, it was really interesting over the years to go to different, even independent attractions around the country and, and start to talk to them about other attractions. And they were just like, I've never heard of that, or I've never had a chance to go there because I'm so wrapped up in my world. So to get that perspective was really helpful for me. Um, in, in ultimately, yeah, writing this report, which even though it ended up at, you know, 29 pages of, of lots of words and graphs and statistics and whatnot, it still just barely scratched the surface um, of what the immersive design industry is and is becoming. And the conclusion of the report was really important. And Noah, Noah and I talked about that a lot. And it wasn't that we are 
it's not our story to craft. I mean, maybe we can help tell the story, but it's about us as a community, the, the, those who are involved in the industry right now, which is still, I mean, you just said, you know, you just said sleep no more and then she fell on fringe. The vast majority of people in this country have no idea what any of that is. You know, right. uh, they might know what um, Museum of Ice Cream is. Maybe, and that's it. maybe they won't even know about that. I mean, yeah. Meow Wolf was just on in the New York Times in a giant article and on the Today Show, and we still are talking to people, and they're like, "Meow, what?" There's so many people who have zero concept that any of this is even happening, and we're getting there little by little. Um, you know, Meow Wolf's a great example. Some Museum of Ice Cream is a great example of ones that are starting to hit that mainstream. But we're still a few years away from it really becoming resonant. Because, like, today, even in Escape Room, a lot of people haven't done that. There's, like, axe throwing is a thing now, right? That's popping yes. up everywhere. That's where most people's sort of bar for experiential entertainment is. It's, I go and I do this thing. And that's as far as it gets. You know, I, I, I throw an axe. Cool. That was an experience. Um, where we're going, though, I think is a slow process. And it is about us who are, who are designing things now to have the foresight enough to, to, it's like timing is kind of everything for a lot of this. I think there's some amazing works and it's ours as well as, for example, Delusion this past year was, was trying to create a year round experience. And, and I, I love the show. I'm like one of Delusion's biggest fans. Um, John's a wonderful person. Uh, I was so disappointed when they had to close. And they had a longer run than ever, and it's amazing. Yeah, they right? were like, oh, we're going to do a spring season. Yeah, and, and, it and they was, did it. Yeah, but, but several it, weeks, right, but... Right, but they, they wanted to just keep going. And the pieces weren't quite there, but I think it was less about what they were doing and more about timing. I don't think the world, right this very second, is ready for delusion is ready for any of the, the ones that have been creating amazing niche entertainment for the past few years. Um, I think we're going to get there in the next two, three years. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start to click. But I, I think it's about creating, understanding that we need to create works that are of today and of the mindset of most people today. And, I, and that's a big reason why Meow Wolf has been successful because they just get to throw open their doors and say, come in, that's it. That's the only expectation of anyone. It's not, you know, to keep using the example, Delusion likes to say, play the part. That's really scary for a lot of people. They don't want to play the part. They just want to be like, I'm here, entertain me, you know, because we're not there yet. Um, but we are, we're, that, we'll, get, we'll get there. Like, I, I, not everyone, you know, of course, uh, but younger generations are looking for more experiences in their lives. The statistics are crazy at how much, you know, it's, it's 70 plus percentage of millennials value experiences over products, over things that they buy. And that's not just immersive experiences. It's, it's, you know, going to a lavish this or not even lavish. It's like going to a right. store. Or and just you, like a cruise or an event or a concert and or anything. a party. Yeah. Anything that is more of a memory than a thing. Um, that's where we're going. That's the first sort of step towards, okay, I'm now putting monetary value towards doing something rather than owning something. Great. Take that to the next step. Okay. Now, now that I've sort of understood that concept of that, uh, now I'm going to be more specific where I'm spending my money. So, okay, now I've got all these experiences to choose from. Which ones do I want to gravitate towards? Is this one worth $60? Is this one worth $20? 
okay? And then we, we, that keeps evolving. And it's like taking those broad strokes now and continuing to refine them to where the niches can then ultimately sort of exist as their own sub-industries. Um, but it's, nobody can rush it, and it's going to evolve at its own pace. And I'm sure there's going to be another Meow Wolf, a whole new company that comes out and just, you know, changes the conversation and creates some other new thing. And, you know, we're, we're hoping to do that to some extent with what we're doing and push things forward. But we have to time things right as well and be in the right market and, and you know, approach things from a way that's understandable to people. So to kind of counter that, <laughs> um, let's see. So today's the 13th. Star Wars Land has been open almost two weeks, yeah. so I'm sure as for, former theme park designers and journalists, you guys have thoughts on Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> Sarah smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it is, I, I'm very glad they are doing um, interactive elements to the parks. I think it's definitely a step in the right direction, and for other you know, immersive companies. I think it's wonderful because it's allowing us to talk about it to sort of more average Joe in an easy way. Oh, well, Disney's doing it. Okay, so now it's not as scary to, to come to our experience because we can see other people who are creating these experiences. It's also great for us because they've had to do it in a way that really appeals to grandma and to, like, this screaming baby in your arms. So it's definitely on a more surface level. It's definitely not as deep of an experience as I'm sure a lot of people probably really wanted it to be. And they probably created amazing, super detailed experiences, but had to kind of dumb it down um, because that's what they have to do when creating for the complete masses and for such a giant company is there's so many approval processes to get anything accomplished that... Again, I think it's a step in the right direction. But is it something that I think is going to be mind-blowing in some sort of experiential aspect? I don't think so. It's an evolution of the theme park product, for sure. Um, And and it was great to see, for example, the other day on Twitter, this phenomenal thread that um, somebody started, which was basically like, what interactions have you had with, with, you know, uh, citizens or what, whatever right. the, 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 the cast members, the cast members, yeah. and people just—it it, it was hundreds of responses, but they were all—they were great, and it was great to hear that every one of those what fourteen hundred cast members have been empowered to um, assemble their own version of a costume from pieces and also develop their own backstories for them. They're not actors; they're not going to deliver deep, meaningful interactions, but it, really small things are what is working right now to open people's minds about what is the possibility of this. If they've never walked up to a random stranger in a themed land and had them respond in character before, if it's always been like, yeah, let me take your money and give you an ice cream. You right. know, if that's like, the extent go, of their let's interaction. Let's go take the picture. Okay, exactly. now we're done. Now if what they're getting back is something as simple as the language has changed. You know, I, I can't remember any of the Batu language right now, but, uh, you know, the cast members... Till the spire. Yeah, are, you, are using certain <laughs> phrases. They've substituted regular English phrases with, you know, not otherworldly phrases, but there's twisting like the things. Batu customs, yeah. like how you say goodbye, good morning, Yeah, or even you. how you, whatever you call a bathroom, and, you know, stuff like that. 
um, little tiny things like that, or or also it helps that I'm sure a significant part portion of the cast members are giant Star Wars nerds, so they can already like spew Star right. Wars, and so you know other Star Wars nerds. There was uh, I forget which publication did it, but they just ran a big headline about Galaxy's Edge, and the headline was something to the effect of Galaxy's Edge is for rich old Star Wars nerds because it's really expensive to go there. Once you're there, it's really expensive to do anything. Like, if you want a lightsaber, it's $200. You can't even experience the lightsaber thing without paying for a $200 lightsaber. So, okay, great. If you have a lot of money and you've grown up with Star Wars, it's like your mecca, which is amazing. Um, and that's great that they're tr starting to lean into that because that's a niche audience. Um, what does that mean for the average person? Well, they're probably a little, a little peeved that it costs so much money. Um, but if they manage to get there, then they are going to have those minor interaction moments that are starting to, as Sarah was saying, starting to make that more commonplace for people. What does it mean to talk to somebody and they're not going to respond as Joe on the street corner? They're going to respond as, you know, so-and-so from Batu. Um, having those tiny interactions that don't necessarily lead anywhere. They're just a, a minor right. conversation. It's, it's just part of the world. You're in the world. Right. That is already resonating with people. So now, when, two years from now, uh, some, some new awesome thing opens that's independent, people come to that, they already understand that, because they've been to Disney, you know, they, they get that. So they're like, oh, it's kind of like that, we're going to go over and talk to people in character. Yeah, except this time it's some other IP, yeah, Marvel, yeah. Or, or, or an original story yeah. or whatever. So but it's it, essentially, but it's, Disney is educating all of our audiences for us. And very simplistic baby step. Right. And I think it's smart that they are doing it in such, like, you know, very slow fashion because, you know, it's, you know, so as Ricky was saying, people are ready for this. They're eager. They want more. They don't want to just walk around. They want to be excited. I mean, a lot of times, if you just sit there and watch people in a theme park, most of them look completely miserable because it's hot outside, they're hungry, their kids are screaming. Even if you pay yeah. attention, because there's been a lot of, you know, YouTube vloggers and Galaxy's Edge, pull up any one of those videos don't look at the person in front of the camera look at everybody behind them you see people very sloppily dressed holding sodas and staring at their phones and like shuffling their feet and like looking around but also sort of you know they're half engaged so it's great that it, at least they're trying to take that one next level of okay walking through the park can be more than just a visceral experience. You can speak to somebody who's going to speak back to you in character. So that sort of heightens your excitement that much farther. And again, that is also, you know, allowing people then to, once they accept that and understand and grow to expect that out of an experience, they're going to be ready to play back. But at the same time, it's been very interesting to pay close attention to the reactions to the Millennium Falcon attraction, which is essentially a giant video game. Those who have an understanding of what a video game is are loving it, you know? But I've seen a significant amount of people who are not gamers go through it and just kind of go, that felt stressful. I didn't know what to do. I was being yelled at. There was stuff going on and I didn't really understand. You know, it was interesting. There's that, I don't know if it's generational or just interest level, but there's a clear divide of like, okay, Disney went for it there, which is amazing. They went for a fully, fully interactive attraction. And that is now splitting people to like, oh my God, I piloted the Millennium Falcon. That's the amazing thing right, I've ever done. We have done. to go back. Yeah, we have yeah, to go back. And yeah. then the people who were like, hmm, I just kind of sat there and I didn't really get it. And, and the kids were doing stuff, <laughs> you know? So it's, 
it's tilted the other direction. And so it's, yeah, this weird back and forth of how do you meet the majority of people's needs and expectations? And that's, that's the big challenge. Yeah, I guess to bring it back to what you were saying, the, the chaos. Mm-hmm. You throw people in, it's the widest spectrum, as you were saying, mm-hmm. possible, Sarah. And then you're just kind of like, oh, this is what happens when you've got your participants, when you're playtesting, mm-hmm. when you're watching how people actually react. So, yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens when the other big name attraction opens. Because right. that one is very, very different and perhaps a bit more linear without like tons and tons of interactivity the whole time. Another thing that was interesting is at the Immersive Design Summit, um, some of the designers or leads of that land were there, and they were talking about, you know, one of the biggest differences between Disney and then a lot of other uh, non-gigantic companies is that they mentioned, you know, they've been playtesting and designing and analyzing and figuring this out for years, yeah, or over, yeah. probably over a decade. Um, I think Sarah Thatcher and mm-hmm. another designer recently gave a talk at GDC. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, what? Disney's at GDC? <laughs> and of course, what they're talking about is everything that we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? It's role-playing, casting the audience, interactivity. Right. And they have millions, if not more, dollars that are spending on it versus a lot of you know smaller other companies. We don't have those resources. You know, That's not something that we're you know capable of doing. But I think being a smaller company is what is going to allow us to project forward so much faster and in such much more exciting way than something Disney could ever do because they are you know they are this huge company they have all the resources and crazy talent that they have which is amazing but they have to go at the pace that they go at and we can take giant risks and we can leap forward just like so many other experiential companies so I'm I'm more excited to see what John Braver's going to do than what Disney's going to do, by far. Awesome. All right, so we've been talking for a really long time. (laughs) Uh, Anything else you guys want to say to the NoPro audience while I still have you? Um, Yeah, I mean, we we would love to have everybody, you know, continue to to follow what what we're up to, of course. You know, we've we've moved from Orlando to Philadelphia for now um, because we needed a, a, a change of scenery and an opportunity to find some, some new footings, an opportunity for growth, some new partners, and really focus on business development because, as Sarah was just saying, you know, we don't have billions of dollars, and that's, that's what you need in Orlando to really do things right. Um, so, you know, we've been, it's great, we've, we've literally uh, are, are in the process of locking down our, uh, our new space for our upcoming uh, Fringe show and Halloween experience this year in Philadelphia. Oh my. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna, we're really excited. Um, you know, we, we started in Orlando with the Fringe Festival, we want to do the same thing in Philadelphia. Um, and we, we, we love the immersive community in Philly. Um, it's small, but it's a wonderful group of people. Super, super passionate. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're, we're all, you know, meeting up monthly and discussing what everyone's doing and figuring out ways we can support each other. And uh, where, it, where it goes from there, we, we have lots of, lots of future plans. But, yeah, that's the, the immediate future is some, some fun new stuff this year from, from Pseudonym in Philly. So. Great. And where can people find you on the Internet? On our shiny, newly refreshed website uh, at questionreality.com. Oh, that's so much easier to remember, you it guys. It is. We, we've even considered changing the company name, but, yeah. Okay, so that's questionreality.com. 
Thank you so much, Sarah and Ricky. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, want to thank Sarah and Ricky for being our guests on the show and for Catherine for holding down the host duties. So there are going to be some changes around here. Um, Catherine is leaving New York, moving to L.A. Uh, she's going to be going to grad school, so she's not going to have as much time. We're in a absolute panic. No, not true. Uh, we are spinning up some folks into new roles. Um, and there is going to be some shifting because um, Catherine's like from the minute she stepped on two years ago was just suddenly massively instrumental. So a lot of social media, all the New York stuff, part of the podcast, like half, half the sky was held up by Catherine and uh, she won't be able to do nearly as much of that stuff. Like she's not going away, but she's got a new direction and a new focus. And probably in early 2020, she's just going to disappear into uh, the grad work that she's doing. So uh, you're going to see our new New York coordinator start doing the newsletter very soon. And the newsletter is coming soon. So get ready for that. You're going to uh, see me in the social media a little bit more. And a few other shifts uh, as we we kind of uh, try some stuff out, put people in new roles, and open up the bandwidth. Um, we're also part of the fun of me being full time is we're opening up new avenues of uh, research and new parts of the the. the the immersive world that we're covering and new ways of covering it. So um, I don't want to make any big sweeping like, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that because I just want to try some stuff out and see what sticks, um, see what people actually respond to. I'm not going to commit to saying, oh, we're going to do a bunch of this stuff and then no one reads it because why do that? Instead, keep your eye on the website. There's going to be some different kinds of articles and some different things popping up and some collaborations here and there. And that's going to alter kind of what we do. And hopefully all that material will be stuff that you find useful and valuable and want to share. It is a cliche for YouTubers in particular to say, remember to like and share, but it's actually really, really valuable when people like and share this material to us. If you think what we do here matters, if you think immersive matters, that's the number one thing you can do to help out uh, beyond tossing some money in the Patreon. Um, and indeed, sometimes even more valuable than tossing money in the Patreon because that way others find us and realize what's going on over here. And at the end of the day, a rising tide lifts all boats. Okay. Over on the website right now, uh, there's some fun stuff you can find, and you can also find something on our YouTube channel. So on the YouTube channel, uh, we did a little, um, kind of, probably should have called it an after dark. We, we did a little talk between Brian Resler, Kevin Gossett, Anthony Robinson, and myself about our time on Batuu uh, at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Talked for better part of two hours, um, and unfortunately my webcam wasn't working. So there's just the NoPro logo when I talk, which was frustrating because I wanted to demonstrate things with my hands. Um, so if you are a Star Wars obsessive or really, really, really want a long discussion uh, that kind of floats around about what's going on with our take on Batuu, that's a place you can go. And we're probably not doing more about Batuu for a while. Uh, 
will be able to check out Rise of the Resistance, which is the next ride that will be opening in early January. So expect us to revisit that then. I mean, I'll actually be re- literally revisiting uh, Batu, but that's that's uh, that's a whole nother thing. Um, We've got some new reviews on the site today, including a site out of London from Shelley Snyder, who took on a, a spy mission from uh, CoLab. And we've also got a uh, tag team piece from Kevin and myself as we go through and sorry, there's some people <laughs> trying to look at some stuff on, on the Twitter. I'm like, what is going on on Twitter right now? Um, our mentions are being weird. Um <laughs> Like really, no, our mentions are being weird at the moment. Fun weird, not bad weird. Um, Kevin and I saw the Halogen Company's one exit here in Los Angeles last night, and we've got a kind of a tag team review. It's a multi-track piece, and what we decided to do in order to get things out quickly is we went and did um, a, uh, a kind of a chat log review. So that's on the the website it'll be on the front page of the site very soon um probably as soon as i get done recording this which means it'll be up before you see this because that's how time works or does it all right um my brain is an empty box there's more shows coming there's more reviews coming um and best of all there's brand new types of articles coming to the website i'm very excited about that so keep your eyes peeled um, next week is San Diego Comic-Con, and we will have a little guide to the app, uh, to the activations. Uh, expect that no later than Monday. And yeah, uh, there's a few other things in the wings, and when we've got something, we'll tell you. Until next time. Oh, ah, 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 the credits. Don't forget the credits. The music. Four, no Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Balthazar, Jan Bubman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. Thank you all. Until next time, I'm Noah Nelson, and I'll see you at the show. <laughs>